0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witty. Get ready to go against the grain. And Michelle, there's a lot that's actually against the grain today. Yes. Um, there is news we have been receiving about the possibility of referendums in Donetsk and Luhansk. Those are the Russian-speaking uh, regions in eastern Ukraine. Well, republics now. Well, and they're, of, they're they're going to have this uh, vote, I guess, this weekend. Is that right? Or Friday? I uh, saw
1: the 23rd and the 27th is what I saw. This is uh, what right. Russian media is right. reporting. That makes sense. From what uh, I can
0: see. They're expected to vote by overwhelming margins uh, to join Russia. I am not an international diplomat anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think that this is a very hopeful uh development. Oh yeah. I really do. I think this is I think this might be the basis for talks. So we'll, we'll that's see. Great. We're gonna talk about that. We we have Jim Jatras coming on the show, who's an expert on uh these issues, and he's gonna he's gonna give us his insights. Uh, we're also going to talk um, to Jim and to Aaron Good about uh, the classified documents that have been taken from Mar-a-Lago and the special master that's been appointed to review them and the process by which documents are declassified in a, in a perfect world.
1: Right, in a perfect world. <laughs> the very sort of arcane, like who, who has responsibility, who's left holding the ball when it comes to these documents, what, you know, and then always... Always when you're dealing with Donald Trump, there's this, at least for me, there's this tension between, yeah, but you know he's like this. Right. And, but that doesn't absolve you of responsibility. And so it's a, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he thinks about uh, the intricacies, apparently, of of what's classified, what isn't classified, how long Uh does this process take, and what's the final stamp, and who bears final responsibility, and how many government agencies are actually involved in it. You're absolutely right. And are right. we sort of growing a legal thicket that yeah. actually is all imaginary? Or is this
0: real and important? Yeah. You know, when I first joined the CIA, uh one of the old timers was uh telling stories once, and he said that he was handling this uh this Soviet defector, that we had been we had been working on this Soviet general for many, many years to to defect, and finally he agreed to defect. And so he comes over and he said that he had been holding all these years the crown jewel of the Soviet military to to hand over to the CIA. And that crown jewel was that in 1968, during the Prague Spring, the Soviets had sent nuclear-tipped missiles and put them on standby. And everybody was like, yeah, that was 25 years ago and nobody cares. (laughs) And it turned out that. We knew it, and we had declassified it years ago. So, you know, what's classified, what's not classified? This is a an argument, a debate that I think people are going to be having for quite some time. And I think, frankly, a lot of Americans are going to learn more about the classification and declassification process than they ever thought possible.
1: If they're like me, they'll not so much uh, learn it as hear it, (laughs) and every day have to attempt to remind themselves of it. It's just somehow, it's like Teflon. It's my personal Teflon.
0: Well, today is the 75th anniversary of the creation of the CIA. Ah. yeah, And so we're going to talk to Aaron Good about uh, about, uh, the drumbeat for a new church committee. Uh, This is something that several... Of our friends have actually written and published about uh, Jeremy Kuzmarov, for example, um, and others have talked about the need. Here we are 20 years, 21 years after 9-11, almost 21 years after the passage of the Patriot Act. The CIA, NSA, the FBI, DOD are out of control, propagandizing the American people, which is perfectly legal now. Yeah, we'll uh, get into that. Maybe. And... Um, and it's time for somebody on Capitol Hill to stand up and say enough. So we're going to talk about that as well. What's uh, happening in your world today?
1: Uh, I had a bunch of interesting and important stories to talk to you about, John. But then I just learned that Brad Pitt is actually a really good sculptor. Have you seen this? Sculptor? Yeah. This is going to be a part eight story. But uh, too bad, Adnan Syed. <laughs> You're getting relegated. Uh, yeah, look, I'm looking at this uh, review Of uh, his, it's a Guardian review of Brad Pitt's sculpting from today. And they say that the reviewer is like, Look, I'm as shocked as you are. (laughs) I expected this to be, you know, the usual celebrity, self indulgent garbage. And he mentions, uh, I guess, uh, Ed Sheeran has painted a bit and sold some paintings that are embarrassing, you know, embarrassing like Jackson Pollock, right? Ripoffs, right, Um, right, right. And uh, who else does he mention? You know, other other celebrities who fancy themselves artists. Uh, But no, he says Brad Pitt is good. What Brad Pitt has created are pungent and memorable images of pain and violence. Um, And that he concludes by saying. Pity, pinch me! I must be dreaming. Brad Pitt is an extremely impressive artist. I certainly didn't expect to be saying that when I got up this morning. This he's is impressive, powerful, worthwhile work. So I thought I thought uh, that would interest you, John. Yeah, so that, that's my,
0: That actually does interest me. Don't say I never you know, did nothing uh, for you. He's one of the country's foremost collectors of um, mid-century modern furniture. Mm-hmm. And I remember during his divorce from Jennifer Aniston, uh, she said disgustedly at least now i can sit on furniture that's comfortable again
1: <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah that's a, that's my little bit of frivolity there is other interesting um stuff happening we are going to talk later more about puerto rico and we are going to ask whether i think you know as i was uh thinking about this topic i i you know of course puerto rico has a, a special status as a us territory um it is sort of un uh, constrained by the the federal government of the United States in a lot of things it can do, but also not, you know, it has some benefits, but not all the benefits uh, that other uh, states get. And so at first you're thinking, okay, well, what is, are there contrasts between, you know, the way Puerto Rico is able to prepare for and respond to emergency situations in other parts of the U.S. mainland when they experience hurricanes, you know, like South Florida, um, Louisiana, Texas. And then I thought, I don't know. I mean, look at the Maybe a better comparison is um, the flooding that we saw in Kentucky recently. Oh, you know how actually maybe, you know, what Puerto Rico experiences isn't isn't sort of a difference in kind when it comes to resources for uh, preparation and, and resilience to natural disasters but just a difference of degree so we'll talk about that but really fundamentally why is any part of the richest country in the world as as we call ourselves whether it's a, a territory or a state uh, why are we so vulnerable to these natural disasters and why uh, does it take so long to respond and climb out of them so we'll talk about that.
0: It's a national embarrassment, to tell you the truth. It seems like we have this same conversation every year or two Mm -hmm. uh, where there's a devastating hurricane that just clobbers uh, Puerto Rico and they lose power and they don't have the ability uh, to, uh, to deliver clean water. And so water has to be shipped in. And every year or two we say, wow, this is really terrible. Somebody ought to do something about this. Yeah, just awful.
1: We um we have the UN General Assembly general yep. debate beginning today, and that um, gathering is going to go on for what does it last for a month? Will yeah, it last, last for a, for a month.
0: Yeah, yeah the uh, chiefs of state usually go early on. Liz Truss,
1: UK Prime Minister, is on her way over here and uh, making headlines this morning is her admission that there actually isn't any free trade deal with the United States um, on the horizon. Talks you know, are not underway. This was sort of something that the the people promoting Brexit thought eh, it'll be fine. We'll we'll immediately conclude a sweet deal with our our uh, special cousins, the Americans. Right. And now it's been a couple years, right? Nothing's really happened.
0: You know, I I happened to be in London a few weeks ago, and uh, actually I I left the day that she became prime minister, and she was very um, confident in her pronouncements that. That she was going to lead a new Britain, it, and she used the word imperialist, which was kind of odd to me. But she wants a big, strong, tough Britain that's that's focused on the outside world, and everything's going to be great. But the bottom line is, Brexit was a mistake, except for the most nationalist people uh, who voted for it, only because they don't like you know foreigners in their country. Um, it was a mistake financially. It was supposed to be to save the the National Health Service. If you recall, all they needed to do was pull out of Europe, and the National Health Service would be saved. Well, the National Health service, to, service is in a state of disaster as it was before Brexit. It hasn't saved them anything. If anything, it's cost them money. Now, instead of just driving right through the channel with your eighteen wheeler to to trade with the rest of Europe, they're backed up. In some cases, for days, at uh, at Dover, not able to to process through customs and immigration and get out. Mm-hmm, it. It's a mm-hmm. royal mess.
1: No, and there were some there were some uh, some compelling arguments from the left on you know th- theoretically the the benefits that Brexit could bring. Sure, but they haven't right, no. and that was never going to that was not going to happen because that wasn't who was really running the ultimately, show ultimately or who was allowed to support it you know yes. it, it got very complicated oh, did you also know that they're think they're going to vote on um going back to the imperial measurement system
0: i saw that which
1: is funny to me and again of course that's what we use See, i'm quite happy to to continue to have pounds and inches and sure. whatever yeah. i'm used to it i don't need to go mm-hmm. to the metric system but like to switch over to the metric system and then switch back
0: yeah, seems it's crazy. Quite silly. You know, I saw a photograph over the weekend of um, of a street in uh, in Stockholm in 1964. I didn't know this, but they used to drive on the left in Sweden, and then they just decided that from now on they're going to drive on the right. And so there was this one day in 1964 where they switched over, and it was utter chaos. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, why? Why do stuff like that?
1: I don't know. I don't know. There's also an update on a case uh, that I is sort of close to my heart, or not for any particular reason, just that I think it's such a terrible example of of what um, the biggest and wealthiest entities are allowed to get away with in the United States. We have been following on the show the saga of Johnson and Johnson mm-hmm. uh, and its different legal attempts to evade. Responsibility and financial consequences from uh, women who say asbestos in its baby powder has caused them different kinds of cancers, and so right now or yesterday, um, there is a court. It's it's comic to me that this is even a question, but there is a court um, that is a, a panel uh, for the U.S. Court of Appeal- Appeals. Uh, I guess trying to assess whether Johnson & Johnson's bankruptcy plan mm-hmm. is is being conducted in good faith. Because they did this legal step they call the Texas Two-Step, where basically they got wind that these um, I- these lawsuits were going to come down. And so Johnson & Johnson split into two different companies, put all of their baby powder entities into this company that they split. You know, like a polyp split off from themselves and then immediately had that company declare bankruptcy. So if you want to sue over baby powder, you can't sue Johnson and Johnson. You have to sue this company that we just made up. That's not exactly Johnson and Johnson and just happens to be bankrupt. And so, you know, these this panel of judges are going, well, so you. You didn't do that to try to, you know, not pay these women. And the lawyers for Johnson & Johnson are saying, oh, no, no, this is actually just going to make all these payments faster. This is sort of streamlining and facilitating the process. You know, oh, if you had to go through us and all our different departments, it would take such a long time. Oh and what we God. really want to do is get money to these women um but in fact of course what they want to do is limit their own liability and so it is it is uh, i think absurd that this is lo- allowed at all ever under any case um but we'll have to see what this panel of judges decides i bought a
0: condo in 2006 and there was a terrible terrible storm i was on the top floor of the of the building terrible storm and the ceiling collapsed well it it was uninhabitable so we had to move into a a hotel and we were in a hotel for 2 months mm-hmm. And, uh, it was the same situation. It was, uh, what's the big investment firm? George HW Bush was on the board and it, uh, Oh. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Based here. Yeah. Anyway, it was that investment firm that, that built the building. But what they did is they didn't actually build the building. They set up a shell company mm-hmm. and the shell company built the building. It had no assets. And so the when shell
1: company was just digging into its pockets going, I don't know. I got five bucks. What? They yeah. were broke. Oh, I'm so sorry. can't help you. And finally, after
0: consulting an attorney, uh, you know, I went to the, the representative for the builder and I said, look, I know all these people are so angry because it wasn't just our roof that fell in. Everybody's roof fell in what mm-hmm. i said we just want to we just want to fix the place and sell it we're not trying to make any money from you we're not asking you to cover our expenses or anything and they wrote us a check hey. and everybody else had to go to court so that's what these companies do they all do it to yeah. protect themselves it's all about the money and
1: what they're who are they protecting themselves and who are they allowed to protect themselves from but consumers who they have harmed exactly
0: right. It's pretty silly.
1: All right, we have some other stories to mention, but I think we can wait until later in the show because I know we have Jim Jotras on the line. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll talk to you in one sec. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we have a grab bag of foreign and domestic issues here. We've got referendums in uh, the, the new independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. We've got European politics increasingly being shaped by the war in Ukraine. We've got Hunter Biden. We've got Donald Trump and the ever-expanding sort of like (laughs) dominoes of declassification falling all around him. Joining us for all of these conversations is Jim Jatras. He's a former U.S. diplomat and a former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Jim, thanks for being here.
2: Hi, Michelle. Hi, John. Mr. (laughs) Grabbag.
0: Welcome back. All
1: the good stuff. Um, So uh, we mentioned at the start of the show that the republics of Luhansk and Donetsk are um, reportedly going to hold referendums on joining Russia. And the dates I have seen for these will be September 23rd and 27th. So very soon. Um, John feels very positively about this move and and, and uh, has suggested that it could actually create conditions for peace. I was thinking, well, is this just going to create another sort of frozen territorial conflict that will last forever. And I I wonder what you think. I wonder what you think about how this shifts things on the ground, how this affects the possibility of a negotiated peace and and what this will do for the long-term relationship between Russia and Ukraine.
2: Well, since I think that the conditions for a negotiated peace are virtually nil, I don't think this really affects it one way or the other. Um, I think what this is more is uh, that Russia is starting to move along on whatever their intentions are, which we don't really know, for annexing uh, large parts of what, uh, let's say, used to be Ukraine, because, frankly, I think the Ukrainian state, as we, we've we known it, uh, really is... Going into receivership. Let's let's let's. Or maybe they're doing a a Texas two-step with Ukraine. Right. Uh, It's. uh, But uh, you know, and I think they've also been talking about referenda in uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson, which I think also were supposed to be in September, now been pushed back into um, into November. I think one of the key things here that people have not focused on is that if these areas then do become part of the Russian Federation, like Crimea did it's essentially to say to nato which is taking an increasingly visible role in this that watch out you're attacking, attacking russian territory now ah uh, mm-hmm. it would be playing with ukraine because remember this in this kharkiv offensive it, it, I, I think there's very credible reports that a lot of these personnel are not ukrainians that where there are a lot of poles maybe americans british people from other nato countries either there as as uh, you know, contractors, or maybe in some cases, as actual military personnel in Ukrainian uniforms, we really don't know. And I think this is a shot across NATO's bow, saying, "Watch out! If you want to escalate this further, this could become a lot worse than you might think."
1: That's interesting, and of course that makes that makes total sense. That actually seems really obvious now. And so you're not really necessarily. I mean, I'd said we we have a, a bunch of. Uh, border conflicts, you know, I have seen people saying it is it is unfair uh, and uh, incorrect to diminish the current fighting between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan as just a border conflict. But, you know, for the for the will be glib and say Armenia and Azerbaijan are experiencing a sort of resurgence in that semi frozen conflict and the same in in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And it seems like this could possibly just create like a, a permanently contested area. But, yeah, it is a different matter if you are directly attacking Russian territory than if you are, um, you know, attempting to to reclaim what you consider to be Ukrainian territory or attacking uh, an independent republic that doesn't have a a lot of formal security affiliations.
2: Uh, That's right. And and you mentioned Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, I mean, that's another place where we're looking at real three-dimensional chess there. I don't think the Azeris would be making this move without uh, support from Turkey. And, of course, Turkey is itself in this rather ambivalent position between its uh, so-called allies in NATO and the Russians, where it's increasingly close in in economic terms. Uh, And I think there's also the suspicion on many people's part that the, the Azeris would not be moving there if they weren't getting a green light from Washington in a way to sort of outflank the Russians on the South and cause them a headache that takes their focus off of Ukraine. So I think there are many elements to that one as well.
1: I also, you know, we we talk a lot about the economic consequences of this conflict for Europe, um, but there are political implications as well. Today, we have The Guardian reporting that the German left party, uh, Die Linke, might actually split over deep divisions on uh, whether Germany should, in fact, have sanctioned Russian energy uh, the way they have, and now the the German left party is not a particularly powerful one at the moment, but it is represented in parliament. You know, it does contest uh, elections. Uh, we've also seen in the UK a sort of um, a steady and dedicated effort to purge the Labour Party of anti-war voices using accusations of, of anti-Semitism and you know be, being a. Poop Lover, and it seems as though you know this. This has the potential to really uh, rip up left politics in Europe, as they sort of can't agree on what's an appropriate response, and uh, you know who's who's the bad guy here. You're
2: right. I mean, the Linka are are a small party already, and if they split, I mean, I don't. I don't think that makes much difference in a parliamentary situation. I think there's two things that are worth note here. One is. is it possible for some kind of anti-war sentiment to grow on the left? Uh, you know, if you look at the politics of most countries, the United States, as well as most European countries, th- th- there is some significant anti-war sentiment on the right, and that's far from a majority, but on the left, it's, it's been virtually non-existent. And the question is, can that be revived on the left? Let's remember that during the first Cold War, virtually the entire peace movement was on the left, but during this 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 war, it is not. The other thing is, is that, you know, you, you can talk all we want about the parliamentary musical chairs in, com- in countries like Germany. I don't think that's where the real change is going to come from. I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to see some real economic collapse and maybe social disru- uh, social disorders in some of these countries before anything significant will change course in the policies of these governments. And in the case of Germany, by the way, I think that's going to come primarily... From the former East Germany, where people there are not as PC as they are in West Germany, and they're not as easily intimidated.
1: Yeah, and it also seems like you know, if you have economic collapse, it creates better conditions for for right wing parties. You know, I, I, they tend to they tend to do better. They tend to, you know, have, have more cohesive messages. Sometimes we're see we're probably going to see this in Italy uh, as of this weekend. We've seen this in in um, Sweden, not necessarily over uh, only economic conditions. But, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of faith that it's going to be the left that is going to rise in a in an organized and unified fashion to address yeah. the economic fallout of these decisions. Again, especially if they can't create a message, you know.
2: Yeah, in a way, I think this is less uh, a less left less a left right thing than populism, and you have mm-hmm. populism on both the right and the left. And I think, in a way, you know, putting this this left right thing back in the closet, it, it, you know, let's talk about the real thing, which is you have a a, a fat um, smug ruling class that is nominally left, nominally right. It doesn't matter, but the, really, the people on both sides of the spectrum have a lot of objections to be basically, you know, it's more like up and down more than left and right. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that is increasingly what we are seeing. Um, Let's let's come back to these shores, (laughs) to Hunter Biden. Uh, Another twist in the sort of many tendrilled Hunter Biden saga happened a, a week ago today when a federal judge found that though there was significant public interest, in revealing how any investigation by the ATF into Hunter Biden's handling of his gun was handled, uh, that Hunter Biden's privacy as a private individual was paramount and trumped the public interest in how he was treated. And so the, the issue here is a 2018 incident in which Hunter's girlfriend, his brother's widow, found Hunter's gun in his car, threw it in a trash can, then went to recover it and couldn't find it. Uh, Politico wrote about this last year. Politico says it has a copy of the police report on the weapon being tossed out. And uh, when they started to look into it, two sources told them the Secret Service went to the gun shop where Biden bought the gun, seeking records on it. The shop owner turned them down. Uh, but when the ATF came back, uh, they he, he handed over the records. And so a blogger had filed a FOIA request for any documents about the Secret Service and the ATF's involvement. And the Secret Service has consistently said, we don't have any records on that. Uh, The Justice Department, which contains the ATF, initially said it couldn't find any records, then said it was searching for records, and then said, actually, we can't confirm the existence of any records. We can neither confirm nor deny these records. And so... A bunch of issues are are raised by this. You know, Politico says it has Hunter's gun purchase application, which includes him checking a box that says I'm not a drug user, which, of course, is contradicted by Hunter Biden's own statements in his memoir. Hunter Biden was probably also in violation of laws about safe storage of the gun in that incident. It probably shouldn't have been in his car. He's probably liable for the actions of his girlfriends uh, when she threw it in the trash can because, you know, ultimately, responsibility is with the owner. He has not been charged with any crimes related to those two violations. And I couldn't tell you, honestly, how often the police actually charge people with things like Uh, you know, lying on your gun purchase application or violating uh, responsible ownership rules if nothing bad actually transpires. But it does illustrate the tension here between public and private in this case. Right. And the the way the children of powerful people often get treated. Right. Is Hunter Biden a public person getting public protection? which would be indicated by these allegations that the Secret Service was sort of hovering around trying to manage this situation, or is he a private individual who is entitled to keep his messy life under wraps? And it is very interesting to me that the judge decided his individual right to privacy was more important than the public interest in what happens when the families of powerful people break the law. Uh, and so I wonder what you think of this decision and, and you know, what it says about When when you're public and when you're private.
2: Well, you know, to tell the truth, Michelle, I'm not even sure that that's really the issue. I think this is a subset of the fact that and I don't mean to be too partisan here, but really now uh, I think this is unprecedented politicization of the law enforcement agencies in this country that, uh, you know, the the Justice Department, the FBI, are essentially private cops. For the Biden administration and the Democratic Party. Now, at some point in the future, maybe the Republicans will have that privilege. I I frankly doubt it. When when Trump was president, he could even protect his own friends from the Justice Department that he nominally headed. Mm So I, I think uh, that what we've we've I, I don't I think we've really pro- passed a Rubicon here. You know, if you look at the kind of subpoenas that are being handed out from the Justice Department to anybody associated with Trump. Uh, you know, arrests of people. You know, like you know Roger Stone, six in the morning, CNN there. I mean, that kind of treatment for somebody like that. Here's Hunter Biden. Remember what whatever happened to Flynn in lying to the FBI? Didn't Hunter just lie to the FBI? So, you know, I, I think there's a real double standard here. It's not just the rich and powerful. I think it's also one big political operation centered in the Democratic Party. Frankly, I think there are people in the Republican Party who are not too uh, not, not too upset about it either because they think it's it's being uh, aimed at the populace, the you know, the Trumpists within the party. And maybe that's OK with them, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is a conversation we're actually going to pick up in just a, a couple of minutes here and talk about, you know, the um Uh, accusations that the FBI has been uh, politicized by one party in particular and how, you know, I think my my reservation is just that it does seem like most of the people who are calling for uh, for uh, some kind of investigation aren't actually looking to sort of shake down this this uh, powerful law enforcement agency and uh recreate it as an agency that actually works for the people but to sort of recreate it as an agency that instead works for them and so it's you know it's hard to muster like full enthusiasm for that project when you look at who's spearheading this but i i agree that i think that is that is part of it. I do think that Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden's crimes are just particularly public and messy. And you can see that it it makes the cover up that I think happens in in a lot of instances just so much harder to hide. Right. He's not just I mean, honestly, look, all of the sort of uh, financial chicanery that is undoubtedly going on is not what is getting all these headlines. It's the stories about guns and the stories about uh, the stories about drugs and those kinds of cover-up.
2: Oh, that's right. And also, let's not forget the you know the corruption in Ukraine. I mean, you saw who was exhausted mm-hmm. the other day saying that the FBI told him to, to lay off on this disinformation regarding his laptop. I mean, that's, that's blatant interference in an election. If that kind of thing happened in another country, our government would be screaming bloody murder of how this is a compromise or a subversion of democracy, and this is just part of the background noise in this country today.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a question, too, Jim, about uh, declassification, which has been so much in the news lately. Donald Trump is is pretty adamant that he was in legal possession of the documents that were taken from Mar-a-Lago. He's already had success in having this special master appointed. Uh, the special master is the former chief judge of the uh, Eastern District of New York very big deal. And a federal judge has ordered the FBI to halt their investigation where it concerns the documents, at least temporarily. Leon Panetta, the former CIA director and secretary of defense, said a couple of days ago that there's a very specific way that presidents um, can declassify documents. Every stakeholder, he said, gets to weigh in on the decision. That's the originator of the of the document, all of the recipients, and the office responsible for protecting sources and methods. If if any of them object, um, it doesn't get to be declassified. The president can override that objection, but it's you know he has to like physically sign a form, uh, sign a, a memo saying that he's doing that. So when a document is is finally declassified, it has to be made available to scholars on the websites of either the National Archives, the National Security Archives, or a presidential library. None of that appears to have happened with these documents. Where do you think this is going?
2: Uh, I I don't know, uh, John. I mean, uh, you know, the Constitution of the United States, the one that's theoretically in effect, (laughs) says that the executive branch is vested in the president. It doesn't say anything about stakeholders or the National Archives, (laughs) interagency process, sources and methods or any of that nonsense. That I think on a constitutional basis, again, my personal opinion, on a constitutional basis, the president has absolute authority to declassify documents simply by either withholding them during the time he's still president or by making them public if he wants to. And that these other things, I think, are basically part of the... You know the Lilliputian lines to tie down. What is the president's legitimate authority, unlike, say, his illegitimate authority to be making wars all the time without the consent of Congress, which evidently nobody objects
0: to. Right.
2: So uh, I don't know where this is going. I I I, I probably maybe a little too jaded, a little too cynical about the state of the rule of law in this country. You're right. Uh, Trump has won this first round with the special like what a special master. Or something. Yes to examine the documents. I, I, I'm skeptical as to where this is all going. I, I have no doubt that what he did is constitutional. Whether constitutionalism has anything to do with the rule of law in this country anymore, I can't say.
0: Yeah, different different question, I guess. Yeah. Right.
1: That was Jim Jatras. He's a former U.S. diplomat. He's a former senior Foreign Policy Advisor to the Senate Republican Leadership. Jim, thanks, as always, for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, John, we have a couple of stories that I didn't get through uh, when we brought the show on, and we have a couple of minutes to get to them. And uh, yeah, I was warning you, careful out there. Uh-oh. STD crisis, <laughs> STD epidemic in the U.S. is out of control, according to the CDC. Um, I had seen headlines about this. Uh, syphilis on the rise. Uh, 26% rise in new syphilis infections reported last year. Uh, so this was... The a, a, An official with the U.S. CDC in a speech yesterday said we have to uh, rebuild, innovate, and expand STD protection in the United States. But it's not just syphilis, everybody's favorite. Uh, apparently, gonorrhea has been rising for years. Syphilis has been rising steadily for years. HIV cases are up 16% Ooh, last year. 16%? Yeah. I That's mean, some of this good. could be the consequence of not going to the doctor during the pandemic, right? Yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of stuff. I, I I suspect that, you know, you see a lot of things sort of ticking up because either they weren't caught or people weren't able to or chose not to take preventative measures because of the the barriers to getting healthcare during the right. pandemic. And so maybe some of these little ticks will will fall back down. But yeah, I mean it's just been this is this is what happens when you can't go to the doctor, you know? Syphilis increases mm-hmm. all every all std things. across the board increases because you can't you know you go longer without having it treated because you don't know you have it because you can't afford to go to the doctor because your copay is a hundred dollars and then you have to pay for your uh prescriptions or whatever you get you can't get time off work right you have to wait weeks for an appointment i mean it's just a it's a symptom of a extremely shoddy healthcare system mm-hmm.
0: You have that right.
1: I don't think it's a I don't think everybody's out there having more fun.
0: No, I, I don't I, think that's I would it. agree. I
1: think that I think that's actually I think I've seen statistics that actually isn't the case that like Gen Z is sort of re- rejecting hookup culture. Right. Drinking way less is another headline. I won't I will not pretend to recall the actual figure, but um, I think statistically and also sort of anecdotally, my friends who work with college students are saying like, yeah, they don't. They're not partying like we were. Really? Yeah, which is good. Yeah, that's My good. My generation, we drank way yeah. really too much. Like we, It was you know, just I, like, find something else to do. I
0: think back on those days, and I marvel at the amount of alcohol that I used to put away. Yeah. I marvel at it. I can't possibly drink like that at this age. No way. No, absolutely not. Yeah.
1: Um, so I think really this is a, a yet another indictment of our public health care system and yet another reason to overhaul it is not going to happen no. in our current political state, unfortunately. I would agree. Yeah. All right. Let's take a little break here. We'll okay. come back and revisit this question of um, the politicization of law enforcement bodies in the United States. Who's got the reins? And I mean, this is always a question when we talk about these things. Yes. Yes. These institutions need reform. Are these the governments we trust to reform
0: them? Exactly. That's the question right there.
1: Okay, we'll come right back and hit that nail on the head a couple more times. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here with Michelle Witte. In 1975, a Democratic senator from Idaho, Frank Church, chaired a major Senate investigative committee to look at criminality at the CIA and the FBI. Church uncovered everything from assassinations of foreign leaders to illegal surveillance of American citizens to the infiltration and destruction of dissenting groups illegal drug experimentation on unwitting Americans. The Church Committee's findings also resulted in the creation of the Senate and House Oversight Committees, that's the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, that were supposed to keep federal law enforcement and federal intelligence agencies operating within the confines of the law. That all sounds great, but it didn't last very long. Forty-five years later, there are now calls for a new church committee. After the 9-11 attacks and passage of the Patriot Act with almost no debate or dissent, the CIA, the FBI, NSA, and other such three-letter agencies are more powerful than ever. Oversight is more like cheerleading. And there's no end in sight. Is it even possible to rein in the national security state at this point? We're joined by Aaron Good. He is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon, and he's also the author of the excellent book, American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey, John. Great to be here. So glad to have you. I I can't think of another time in American history, Aaron, where we needed another church committee so much. The CIA, FBI, and NSA were given practically unchecked. Power and authority after 9-11. Executive Order 12333 was repealed. Assassinations began again. And literally everybody is under surveillance. I hate to even say that, but it's uh, quite literally every American is under surveillance of one form or another. The question is then, is there any will on Capitol Hill to rein in these agencies? I looked at at a photograph today, Aaron, Of the members of the church committee, and they were all giants, both Democrats and Republicans, Barry Goldwater, Howard Baker, Walter Mondale, Gary Hart, Paul Sarbanes. I mean, these were the the giants of the body at the time. Do even such people exist anymore that could carry out legitimate oversight over these agencies? I don't think
3: so. I don't think I can't think of anyone in Congress who is a uh, strong critic of the intelligence services. even Bernie uh, Sanders largely acquiesced to the basic parameters of of Russia gate even though it was kind of straightjacketing him in terms of being able to talk about foreign policy and such. So I think that the victory of these forces in American society is reflected by the fact that, you know the, that there's really nobody in Congress who's willing to stand up for them. I mean, after the Cold War ended, you even you had people who are vaguely neoconservative, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, yes. establishment people, calling for the abolition of the CIA and saying that we don't really need it. It's just not commented on what a uh, anti democratic. Uh, institution it is, and a uh, it's a dictatorial power that they have to break the law and and to lie about it, you know, with cover stories and and so on. And um, this is it, it's not really remarked upon because uh, ultimately, I think the issue is not so much the that the CIA is the Illuminati uh, or that the CIA is really the 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 reptile people running everything in the world. It's it's much more. Pedestrian in that it's that the CIA and then the the security services, the the FBI and the NSA, they were created by lobbying efforts from uh, the pinnacle of uh, Wall Street power, and so they are the secret police of the America's corporate oligarchy, and so the which is the same people who fund all of the campaigns for everybody in the Senate and the House. And so you—that—that's really the source of their power. That's why even after the Church Committee and the Pike Committee, um, and after Iran Contra, after Watergate, after all these uh, exposures of their criminal malfeasance, uh, nothing ever really happens to them. The the, the biggest scandals you can think of—the you know crack their connection to the crack traffic in uh, the '90s or the 80s and 90s, and the um, you know, the Air America heroin trafficking. Nobody ever, or MK Ultra. Nobody's ever held accountable for these things. No, and uh, that's because they. It, it's more than. It's not that they're blackmailing every single person out there. I mean, they probably do a lot of that. It's not that they have to kill everybody all the time. I mean, they, they can do that too. But that because they are the cat's paw of the the people with all the money in the world. They have a, a protection. Uh, That's that's pretty uh, 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 bulletproof at this point. Yeah.
0: And Capitol Hill actually is a very different place today than what it was in 1975. The legislative branch has just voluntarily ceded much of its authority to the executive uh, branch. And just look at these these authorizations for use of force that come up every few years. I mean what is that? That's just made up. Either you have a declaration of war or you don't have a declaration of war. This authorization for the use of force was just something made up so that Congress didn't have to carry out its constitutional duty to actually have a vote on something like like a declaration of war. Do you think there's anybody with any guts right now on Capitol Hill willing to stand up to these agencies? You know, the only person who even vaguely comes to mind is is Ron Wyden, but Ron Wyden is also a good soldier. He, you know, he plays by the rules, and he's he's willing to only go so far before he backs off. Am I missing anybody? Not to my
3: knowledge. I mean, I have gotten to the point that I don't pay as much attention to what people in Congress are doing, or even to the directors of the CIA and the National Intelligence uh, Service. Because they are so interchangeable at this point yeah. that they don't, you know, seem to matter that much. Like it, it, when you look at different areas in U.S. history, you can try to figure out some of these characters are more inscrutable. Like Richard Helms, for example. You know, who was he really serving uh, under when he was working under Nixon and so on? I mean, this—he was the guy who, when. It became clear that uh, Watergate might blow up on in Nixon. in Nixon's face. he d- took the step of destroying um, all the MK Ultra documents, supposedly. Yep. I mean, maybe they they secreted them away somewhere. But this should have been a major scandal, and he also deleted the entire CIA uh, taping system. And so when things really blew up with Watergate, you had Richard Nixon uh, getting his taping system exposed and poured over. Uh, as the president of the United States, but the intelligence services are able to operate with like impunity and anonymity, basically, and nobody could do anything about it. Uh, and there's also reason to suspect that in the Watergate case, the guy who actually revealed the existence of the taping system, um, Butterfield, Alex Butterfield, yeah, was, Butterfield. Was, was, was probably CIA. I mean, that was what E. Howard Hunt told L. Fletcher Proudy, and it got reported on CBS News. Uh, and then they, they sort of backtrack it, but I don't think that Proudy ever said, Totally recanted. It was a very strange thing, and it makes perfect sense. That's what the secretary, sure Nixon's secretary, thought that. And so the the bigger point is that it's you, people debated this in the seventies because it was clear they were Watergate exposed so much, and it made people go back and look at the political assassinations too of the of the nineteen sixties. But it, the question that was the way it was framed by people like uh, Arthur Schlesinger or Frank Church was was the question of is the CIA a rogue elephant? You know or is it do we have an imperial presidency where the president can use the cia as his own personal secret police and it's actually i think much worse than that because it's not it's not a rogue elephant and it's not a it's not that the president has total control of this agency as watergate showed very clearly and as the trump presidency showed very clearly the pro, the, the issue is that they are a they are wall street's elephant i mean yes. they are the elephant of the oligarchy in america and so, even if they're reined in for a little bit, if you're not going after their source of their power, which is the vast fortunes owned by, you know, the pinnacle of corporate wealth in America, they're just going to come back in some other form. And so, it's a it, it's a huge problem, and it's every because the CIA ultimately serves the same people who bankroll. All the people in Washington, and so they are the CIA and all of, all of Congress serve the same people more or less. And this is the, the conundrum that we're in. That's what
0: it comes down to. Another difference between, <clears throat> excuse me, between now and 1975 is that in 1975 the American people generally didn't know what the CIA and the FBI were doing to them. Now we know. We know what the Patriot Act authorizes. Uh, We know what the National Defense Authorization Act allows, but there's no public outrage. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm outraged that my government is now legally permitted to propagandize me. I'm outraged that, that the CIA has, you know, or had a system of Secret prisons and a rendition program and a torture program that the the FBI uh, can can pull your personal information with nothing more than a national security letter, which they generate themselves. Why aren't Americans outraged by this and why aren't our congressional representatives outraged?
3: I mean, I think that they are uh, the the public as a whole is distracted by a number of issues, and it's not in the interests of any politician to make this the center of their political career. And so, it, it, as much as you can say we know these things because they are in the public domain, the awareness of the of them as a cumulative thing that we could somehow address is just not really allowed to surface. I think in the public consciousness because the media does not talk about these things. On the one, or, or if they, they report them as isolated events, but they don't really put them in context, and they don't it, there's no there doesn't seem to be any avenue for action presented by the media at all, and so it just kind of goes on this way. I, I think that we know we know enough to be very alarmed, and the the stuff that's incontrovertible and and you know rock solid con, confer, confirmed that the U.S. has done the sort of crimes of the national security state over the decades, you know, internationally and domestically are are impressive and uh, astounding, really. And the fact is that we don't know. That's probably only half of it. Uh, We know they have other things that they just don't put out there that they do all the time. Um, that that are that are lied about. Additionally, the emergency provisions that were enacted after nine eleven get renewed every year, and we don't know what other powers yep. the government has assumed uh, since then. It's it's that's classified. Even yep. Congressmen who try to find out aren't allowed to find out. So we don't really know, we don't know what we don't know. But we are aware of the fact also that the U.S. can outsource some of these shady things to its allied states. That's part of what they did with the Five Eyes program They would uh, and, and related things. They would have the British spy on Americans to get around provisions exactly. about NSA spying. And Epstein has those connections to uh, through Ghislaine Maxwell, apparently to Israeli intelligence. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, just suggests that the U.S. may have outsourced... You know, the CIA and related parties may have outsourced sexual blackmail operations to, uh, to to some Israeli actors, at least in the Epstein case. That's what it suggests to me. I mean, things that we know, but we haven't done anything about, for example, Dennis Hastert was found to be yeah. a, a ridiculously corrupt uh, pedophile Active with connections pedophile. to heroin trafficking <laughs> operations in Turkey. This was written about in Vanity Fair, the, the Turkish heroin part. And there was no and that was in he still continued to be Speaker of the House for yeah. years after that. It's just out there in the public record and but we don't we're the, the media never puts these things together. They never totally unpack the pretty obvious indications of the Epstein thing And then if you add that to what, to Dennis Hastert's career, then it it also suggests that being a a, a depraved pedophile was uh, was actually an asset for him in his career he got rose to the position of speaker in the house because he was so easily corruptible because right. of all of his horrendous moral failings that just made him susceptible to blackmail and was good for him in this system that that's something that is pretty easy to argue and pretty clear to see and it should have people You know, demanding revolution or something to that effect, but it just it just doesn't. It's just another outrage that uh, forget about it. Move on. Let's talk about Ukraine or or something else.
0: (laughs) The CIA is celebrating and I'm using that word literally. It's 75th anniversary um, uh, this year. It's actually today. As crazy as it might sound, I was even invited to go to the I received an invitation (laughs) to go to the celebration. I declined. Of course. Uh, in the publications that the CIA Sorry, is... Sorry, they
1: have an open bar or something? I'm just curious. Uh,
0: actually, they did.
1: It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, they did.
1: I support the CIA And now. they
0: had an ice cream bar, <laughs> oh, ice cream sundae bar, oh, my and God. tours of the new, some building that they built where they, you know, took away a thousand parking spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just all, all fun, fun kind for the whole family. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, In the publications that the CIA is putting out for the anniversary, they're promoting their great successes, like bringing down the Soviet Union and destroying Al Qaeda. But they're not talking about illegal surveillance operations, assassinations, the torture program, the rendition program, drones. None of that gets mentioned. Why does none of this seem to matter to the media? Isn't at the media who are supposed to be questioning the official line. I mean, what happened to, you know, the likes of Woodward and Bernstein? Why do we not have that anymore?
3: Well, I think that Woodward and Bernstein is kind of a myth um, that when, uh, you know, Woodward seems to have been a spook uh, on, on some level. He worked yeah. for really, he worked for, he was the, the acolyte of people that were well to the right of Richard Nixon, this anti-detente group in the, in the White House. And the, the Washington Post was always the CIA's official newspaper. Oh, so yeah. that whole always era is a, is, a weird, is a weird myth, but, but it had enough reality to it that it kind of inspired some journalists, I think, for a while. And uh, when people wanted to do, investigate Iran-Contra, which looked like a scandal as bad or maybe worse than Watergate, especially when you look at what, really, what Richard Nixon really did on the smoking gun tape, which was pretty boring almost by U.S. standards— um, and then you you saw people at like Newsweek, you know, Robert Perry was told, "Oh, we don't want another Watergate with this Iran Contra business, so don't do that." I think that the issue in, in the in the U.S. has always been with the this, the vaunted free press is that you have to own a media outlet, and it's difficult to to the the, the function of the media for um, the ruling the American ruling class of the American oligarchy the the actual visible purpose of it to like commercial advertising and so on is really secondary. I think to the social control purposes of it, I have to guess that like the advertisements on CNN and MSNBC, that they don't really generate um, corporate profits in the same way. I, right. I, I, I can't prove this with, with like social science, but I would guess that these are in a way like uh, protection payments or something from the, the sort of corporate class because, uh, to, to basically make sure that the news is always one way. And that's like every, every news channel in the U.S. It, it may as well be run by the CIA in terms of the, the range of reporting and, and critique that they allow. I mean, Fox is the most obvious. But really, when you see the, like Rachel Maddow going on, taking the CIA line on so many issues, especially when there's a Democratic president, you realize, like, man, the, the, there's really like a, this differences between Fox and MSNBC are just are, are mostly superficial so this is this is the this is the conundrum. The free press is the free press in a capitalist society is always captive to market forces, and there's there they haven't found a solution to that because people in power don't want there to be a solution to that. They don't want public television or anything sort of democratically controlled uh, that would serve as a constraint on their uh, on their dominance over society.
0: We've got about two minutes left, so I want to ask you quickly about uh, the CIA and Hollywood. We all know the backstory of Zero Dark Thirty, for example, and how the CIA aided in the production uh, and release of that movie. We know about the ongoing cooperation between the CIA and the various Hollywood studios. Is it even possible to stop CIA propaganda from spreading throughout American society when you have willing partners in Hollywood studios?
3: Uh, right, I mean they're the 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 Hollywood studios' missions you know, as they are owned by the huge pools of capital like BlackRock, State Street, you know, Vanguard is the same as the CIA's mission, you know, returns to corporate b- profits. And so e- even when they it's hard to even uh, suss out what's CIA and what's not. Like for example, the Black Panther thing was pretty obviously like had to have been written by somebody sympathetic to a CIA point of view <laughs> right. where it's like basically a real it somehow takes this liberation uh, symbolism, uh, you know, and black power symbolism, and then it turns it into a, a peon to, um, to neoliberal capitalism, right? And it is basically totally opposed to, like, what the actual Black Panthers were for, okay? So it's like, is that written by the CIA, or is that just Hollywood corporate guys uh, who like are think the same way. And so they like want their social engineering that way. They don't even have to be told by the CIA to do that because they already know that they think the way that the CIA would want them to think, uh, you know, that they're on the same page. So that to me seems like, yeah, you, you're not going to in this system, you're not going to change that very easily. I think the best chance is maybe international financing for things. Um, I mean, that's how Oliver Stone got JFK made and his other JFK documentary, oh, for example. Point. So that's a good point. That's the
0: problem. We will leave it there. We were happy to be joined by Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Check that out. Also check out his book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. To political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witty. We are quickly approaching the midterm elections, which are only six weeks away. And just as we said would happen, I'm blowing my horn here. Every tight race is tightening even further. Just this past weekend, for example, 14 different Democratic senators tweeted their support for Nevada Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and asked their followers to make a donation to her campaign. Masto's lead over State Attorney General Adam Laxalt has consistently been in the low single digits. President Trump traveled to Youngstown, Ohio over the weekend to campaign for Republican Senate nominee J.D. Vance, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell poured, get this, $28 million into Vance's campaign to pay for television advertising. In Arizona, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is locked in a tight race with Blake, I forget his last name, I wrote Blake Kelly, and it's not Blake (laughs) Kelly, whatever his last name, Blake, leading the MAGA challenger by only a single percentage point in a poll that was released this morning. Blake Masters. right? I was just going to check that. Masters has already announced that he will not concede if he loses because that could only happen if the race were to be stolen from him. Does that sound familiar? In Pennsylvania, the Senate race has tightened between Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and TV quack Mehmet Oz. The lasting effects of Fetterman's stroke have provided an opportunity for Oz to campaign about Fetterman's fitness for office. The two finally agreed to have one debate, which will be held the week before the election. And in Georgia, Republican challenger Herschel Walker released a TV ad this week mocking his own lack of intelligence. That's right. He actually says in the ad, quote, don't expect too much of me. I'm not that smart. Unquote. We're joined by Brian Wright. Brian's a California based attorney and a former radio talk show host. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure. Hey, before we get into these these races, which I just love doing, um, you wanted to raise something that I got a chuckle out of when I saw it this morning. It's about Steve Bannon, because Steve Bannon has nothing else to complain about or to criticize. He's criticizing Joe Biden's desire to fund research that might lead to a cure for cancer. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, well. <laughs> I know. I laughed, too, when I read it. <laughs> oh, You know, these people, it's
4: just unbelievable to me. He's, uh, in essence, I think, saying that the Democrats uh, and their ilk are trying to rework our DNA into being human 2.0 or something like that because of the desire with this replacement theory. In other words, not just going to replace the voting populace of the United States with people of different colors but now to actually change humans themselves
0: <laughs> where do these people come from this is straight out of qAnon you know Q, a lot of qAnon people believe that that um, that as many democrats have uh uh alien dna or um what do you call alligators? Uh, the lizard
1: people? Yeah, the lizard people. Yeah. Reptile,
0: red, thank you. Reptile DNA. What do you call an alligator? I know, I was trying to, I was Harry. thinking amphibian. And, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah. Um, and as as nutty as it sounds, I mean, there, there are people now who believe stuff like that, and they actually go to vote on uh, Election Day.
4: Oh, yeah. But, you know, this really calls into question, do the people who say these things really believe what they're saying, or are they pandering to their audience? Right. You always have to question that. And as a matter of fact, this reminded me of Larry Elder and the recall election here in California. Yeah, sure. Larry Elder is a talk show host, but he admitted in a— I don't remember what the issue was, but he admitted that the position he was taking— on the radio was different than the position that he believed, Ugh. and this kind of attitude just drives me insane. Oh, I, I agree.
1: Didn't Hillary Clinton say something like that during the um, campaign that she got dragged for as well? Saying, "Well, there's a public, there's a public oh, yeah. presentation and a private one when she was talking yeah. about discrepancies about uh, between what she said in front of Goldman Sachs executives and what she presented yes. to the public on the campaign trail." Yeah, it is. It does drive Jeez. me crazy.
0: Yeah totally agree i will lie because i'm going to make money well even alex jones said in uh, in one of his recent uh, uh civil trials that his show is entertainment that it's not news that he just makes all that stuff up
1: As rachel maddow said a similar thing
0: did she really
1: As she said it's basically entertainment oh. not she didn't say i just make stuff up right but there was a yeah some kind of legal drama there that resulted in you know you had to say, eh, listen, uh, you have to consider this entertainment.
4: I think Tucker Carl- Carlson is probably also of that genre. Oh, without a doubt. has a job to do, and therefore he comes up with things to say that support the position of the outfit that he works for.
0: Absolutely true.
4: People buy it. I, I mean, I hate this thing. And please, please, please bring back the Fairness Doctrine.
0: Oh, my gosh. The fairness doctrine. You know, I don't. I don't think very many of us realized just how damaging it was to uh, to do away with the fairness doctrine. Oh yeah, we we as a country we haven't recovered from it. Uh, under Reagan, we got rid of it under Reagan. That's right. It was under Reagan. Yeah. Just just like uh, just like the the two parties uh, creating a, a debate commission and taking it away from the the League of Women Voters. It's never been the same. Yeah, I want to get to some of these uh, Senate races, Brian, um, if I could. We've been saying for, for months that the House is likely lost to the Democrats, but the real races are in the Senate. And that's proving, I think, to be the case as so many of these races tighten up. You are a lot closer to Arizona than I am. Arizona used to be ruby red, and now it is purple. It has two Democratic senators, but just barely. Mark Kelly is one of those senators. He has a sterling reputation. I mean, just as a good human being, his wife, uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was shot in the head and nearly killed by a a crazy person. Kelly himself is a famed astronaut. He's an incumbent, but he's only leading his MAGA challenger by one percentage point in this poll that came out today. Why do you think this race is so close? Well, I...
4: (laughs) I guess it's to be expected in a purple state. I mean, otherwise, otherwise it wouldn't be purple. Uh, And of course, when you said the transition from red to purple, I think uh, part of that is due to the influx of California uh, residents who are moving there. But I always view Senate races as much more reflective about the populace's attitude about what's going on in the country as a whole. Yes and less about the individuals, because frankly, I don't think most people know that much about the individuals or their record, other than they're a Democrat or a Republican, and kind of what the talk has been in general in the media. So, I mean, as you indicated, he, he won initially by only a small margin, so yeah, not necessarily to be expected that the margins are going to change.
0: You know, Arizona was the state of Barry Goldwater. It was the state of Dennis DeConcini. I mean, these guys were major towering figures in the late 20th century uh, in the Senate. And now it's, you know, MAGA people and election deniers and Joe Arpaio. And it's it it's just changed. Everything's changed. It's not like it used to be.
4: Well, I don't know if you can say it's changed a lot from Goldwater, because Goldwater of his day was very
0: conservative. He was conservative, but he was a respecter of civil liberties, and we don't get that from, from the MAGA people.
4: Well, but that, you're very correct, and that's reflective of the Republican Party as a whole. anyway. Yeah, it is. I think last time we even talked about the transitioning of the Southern Democrats to the Republican Party. Yes. That's when the Republican Party really started becoming what it is today. And it is—it's scary.
0: We've uh, spoken with you in the past about this Nevada race uh, between Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt, the state attorney general. I read in Politico this week that if this were any other year—and this actually goes to the point you you made a moment ago—if this were any other year, Masto would be coasting to victory. But this year, she's barely ahead of Adam Laxalt, who she has outspent four to one. Um, Do you think she's having a problem with fellow Hispanics? Is her problem with organized labor? Is it with progressives? Why is she not breaking out of this race?
4: Well, again, looking at uh, her previous uh, victory, she won only by 2.4%.
0: That's true. And we are
4: looking at a situation where I don't think you can pinpoint any one of those, but simply it's kind of all of them, in that uh, voter registration has been increasing, Hispanic voters are drifting away from the Democrats, and the the inflation and other issues we've been having has been very impactful in Nevada. Uh, In in particular, even the COVID lockdown type thing, because Nevada is very reliant on tourism and gambling. So when you couldn't do those things, the people's lives
0: were influenced very severely. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, And I I think that you're right, that Senate races are are reflective of uh, the national mood and of national politics. And House races are not. House races are local for the most part i believe um i'm also interested to hear your thoughts on ohio you know in the beginning of the of the campaign season i really wasn't paying very much attention at all to ohio uh but ohio seems to be changing. It was supposed to be a cakewalk for J.D. Vance once he got through his primary. The billionaire uh, investor and entrepreneur Peter Thiel has poured millions of dollars of his own money into this race. J.D. Vance used to work for him. It's an increasingly Republican state. Uh, We've watched Ohio move farther and farther to the right over the last 10 years. Uh, But Democrat Tim Ryan is relatively conservative. He's very much an Ohio Democrat. Um, strong support from organized labor, pro-gun, anti-abortion. Um, Politico still rates this race as likely Republican. But I went to 538.com today to look at all the polls. And the latest polls have Ryan beating Vance by one percentage point. And polls taken over the past week have Ryan beating Vance by two to four percentage points. What are your thoughts? Do you think that it's possible for the Democrats to to win an Ohio Senate seat? Well,
4: it's he's a a Democrat in name only. He's a dino. Right. A dino. Yeah. Uh, And uh, he's uh, also, as I understand it from early on in the campaign, he was outspending Vance, and he's been much more active Than Vance, Uh, uh, one of the complaints of Vance is he was kind of behind the scenes too much, and uh, anything is possible when the guy is basically saying, "Look, I'm a Democrat, but on these issues, I go against the Democratic establishment. Uh, Therefore, I'm okay for you guys."
0: You know, and and you can do that in the House where you have a little bit of wiggle room. You can't do it in the Senate when it's 50-50, but if there there is a majority for the Democrats of two or three seats, yeah, I could see that happening. I could see Tim Ryan being a a slightly younger Joe Manchin. Right. Um, I'm surprised that the Pennsylvania Senate race is tightening as much as it is. In the gubernatorial race... Uh, State Attorney General Josh Shapiro is just crushing State Senate President Doug Mastriano. The last time you were on the show, we talked about Mastriano and how he's a QAnon follower. He participated in the in the rioting at the Capitol on January sixth. Um, in fact, Politico called Josh Shapiro possibly the country's first Jewish president, and he hasn't even been elected governor of Pennsylvania yet. But the Senate race in Pennsylvania is much closer. Fetterman now leads Oz by only four percentage points. Did Fetterman's stroke do him in, do you think? Does Oz have enough juice to actually win this race?
4: You know, it's possible that the the stroke has had some effect on people's attitudes. But the, the thing I always fall back on in any political race is celebrity. People who have no business in the political arena get into it because they have name recognition. And people vote for those that, with whom they're familiar uh, sometimes. Yeah. And uh, that's an, a very unfortunate thing, but I think to a large degree, that's what's happening in Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, that very well could be it. Um, a, refl-
4: the re- a reflection on uh, the feeling about uh, the economy and all the rest of that stuff.
0: Right. The Hill uh, newspaper said that that uh, Josh uh, Shapiro is so popular that he may actually have coattails. Even in this off-year election, uh, Mastriano is so unpopular that he might have reverse coattails and drag Oz down with him. Uh, but I think Donald Trump is going to make a lot more trips to Pennsylvania and not to Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. I mean to red Pennsylvania to try to... Uh, to gin up uh, support for Oz and get out the vote. I think this is really going to come down to it, which reminds me of another thing, too. Uh, Politico ran a piece yesterday saying that it could be days before we know who uh, controls the Senate. Do you think that there are going to be enough close races that we may not know for a little while who actually won this election? I think you're
4: correct. I think that uh, we are not going to know right away, unfortunately.
0: Unfortunately,
4: it gives, them fodder. it gives people fodder for uh, arguing stolen election and all the rest of that stuff.
0: I've got to ask you about Herschel Walker and Georgia. I'm just fascinated. This is like a car crash that you can't turn away from. Like, it's horrible to look at, but you can't stop. You can't stop yourself from looking. This guy has to be the dumbest son of a gun who has ever run for a seat in the U.S. Senate. He's finally saying so himself in this new ad. Um, this is obviously meant to lower expectations in advance of, of his debate with uh, Senator Raphael Warnick. Um, it's my view that a debate is a very bad idea for Walker, even if Walker prefaces the debate by saying, look, I'm really stupid and I'm probably going to lose this debate. But you should vote for me anyway, because I'm a nice guy. Um. He's going to be destroyed in this debate. Why do you think he would go forward with it, and why do you think he would make such a, a an ill advised ad? I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat the quote from the ad. Don't expect too much of me. I'm not that smart.
1: Yeah, who's that? Who is that appealing to? Seriously, I mean, again, it's one thing to say, "Hey, I'm not that smart. I'm right. You know, whatever. I'm not. I'm not book smart. But right. I, blah blah blah. I'm not that smart. I can sort of see." Don't expect too much of me Yeah, does not seem like a winning campaign message. No, you could do something with no way. I'm not like these other right. uh, Yaleys or whatever, right. but like, I'm just going to sit there like a doorstop or something, a uh-huh. paperweight.
0: I'm so confused. I can't understand the issues. Yeah. What the heck message is that? Yeah.
4: I, I think he's trying to take a weakness and turn it into a strength. In a weird kind of way, basically saying, I'm one of you, I'm a man of the people, I'm going to represent you from your standpoint, and not from the standpoint of these intellectuals or whatever. To the extent that that's going to succeed, I don't know. But again, Walker is a guy who has name recognition. Yeah. That's the only reason that he's in this race at all. Absolutely right.
1: I mean, I see how that could work with the, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, taking a weakness and trying to turn it into a strength.
0: It's the don't expect too much of me part that really blows I, I, that up for me. It's shocking to yeah. me. Yeah. And we we have somebody in the chat, longtime listener. I hope you don't mind if I read your, your comments here, but I think you make a very important point. We have a, a A longtime listener whose whose handle is longtime listener saying the Democrats have become the Wall Street Chamber of Commerce, Pharma, Moderate or Liberal Republicans and Republicans have become the Yahoo Party. There's no party for common people. The Democrats sold out the industrial unions in Ohio and other Rust Belt states with NAFTA outsourcing and offering few opportunities for people who lost out and people have no reason to vote for them. I'm a Pennsylvanian and I'm probably voting green. You know, I, I agree with all of that. Really, what we have are two right-of-center parties. Uh, we don't have a real choice on the left. If you want a choice on the left, you're you're forced to vote Green, and the Greens aren't going to win in these in these big races.
1: Vote uh, Green or vote a smaller left party. Or as, vote a smaller one. That's right. You know, smaller chances of winning, sure. yeah.
0: Sure. Exactly right. Certainly, uh,
4: a, a portion of the Democrat Party that is liberal with the uh, the squad and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I don't think that there's the, the issue is there's no left of center party. I think the issue is that both of them are too extreme on their sides and, uh, we need a centrist party as we, as we've talked before.
0: I was talking to Jesse Ventura a couple of weeks ago and he was very excited about this, this new party that, uh, Uh, Christine Todd Whitman, and who was it? Yang that ran Andrew
1: Yang, the forward party?
0: It it was Andrew Yang, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, the forward party, that's what it's called, Mm -hmm. right. He was very excited about this. He said that he worked with Christine Todd Whitman for many years and the Governor's Association, that she was really great and she was really smart and Andrew Yang is smart and he was excited about it. And then I never heard anything again. Have you heard anything about this party? Is it serious? Is it funded? Is it expanding? Or did they all just go home?
4: No, they're, they are around. Actually, I kind of uh, signed up for it, if you want to call it that, just to see if, what way I can be involved or whatever. And uh, because it isn't if they are what they say they are. Uh, and I received an email recently from someone that said, "If you want to talk, uh, just sign up on my schedule." Which I haven't
0: done yet, but I'm going to because I want to know more of what's going on. Yeah, keep me informed if you don't mind. I, I'm interested to know what uh, what their intentions are and if they have if they have the funding necessary to actually be competitive in some of these races.
4: Yeah, uh, the funding is a, is a big question. It is. I always, I still have this concern that the way that the uh, Electoral College thing is set up, it really counts against any third party
0: becoming Yeah, yeah that's right. You'll never get invited to a presidential debate, that's for sure. Yeah. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans want any uh, uh, independents or third parties in these debates anymore. Hey, Joe Biden said over the weekend that he had not made a decision to run for re-election. He said that it was too early to discuss it. The Hill, several months ago, ran an article saying that Biden had told Barack Obama that he was running for re-election. The White House is now saying that that article was a fabrication and that no such conversation ever took place. They were they were categorical about it. If Biden doesn't run for re-election, the floodgates open. Even though a lot of Democrats will likely run, though, my view is that the bench isn't very deep. Do you see? Anybody breaking out of the pack? Do you see any Democrats at this early stage that we should take seriously? Um, my opinion
4: on this is very similar to yours. This is a very tough question. And there hasn't really been a lot of talk in the media, at least, about who the upper tier Democrats might be who yeah. are presidential possibilities. Uh, there's no heir apparent, uh, as far as I know. And nobody's out there really making a name. And if you look at 2020, there weren't any superstars in that lineup. No, that's exactly right. Overly impressive. Uh, Frankly, uh, at that time, I liked Pete Buttigieg, but he has a lot of obstacles to overcome.
0: Yeah. And Michelle made a point yesterday that Buttigieg seems to have dropped the ball on this this, uh, rail strike. Uh, he just sort of, you know, ceded authority to uh, to the secretary of labor, Marty Walsh, Marty Walsh, it was Marty
1: Walsh and Joe Biden personally who, fact, who kind of managed the whole thing and exactly took right. credit for it. And again, I don't think we have seen the actual results. They did a victory no, no, lap. We'll yet. see if the um, yeah, we'll contract see. is approved. But yeah,
0: yeah, um, you know, we hear so much about Gaz- Gavin Newsom and uh, J.B. Pritzker, the governor of of Illinois, from the the extraordinarily wealthy Pritzker family. Newsom recently rented billboards in Florida and Texas telling women who want an abortion that they are welcome in California. This seems to me to be a clear message that he intends, eventually at least, to run for president. Am I missing something about his motivation here? It seems like he's working hard to make himself a national name.
4: I think you're probably right, and eventually he probably will. As I understand it, though, it's not going to be this time around if either Biden or Harris are is the candidate or potential candidate because they did a lot to assist him in his recall election.
0: Oh, right, good point.
4: So it it, it looks like it might be down the road sometime. So maybe he's kind of. Situating himself for that, right? But uh, frankly, uh, I'm quite afraid of another Biden candidacy.
0: I am too. I, I, I'm afraid of it too. The mental and, and physical wherewithal. And speaking of being afraid, let me let me go to my final question for you. Here we are, nearly two years after the 2020 election, and Donald Trump is still in the news every single day. He's in more trouble than any other former president in American history, Uh, but he's carrying on like he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does Trump ignore his legal problems, do you think, and run for president again? Or have the Democrats and the courts effectively sidelined him? And besides that, what do you think of the possibility of Donald Trump running and uh, DeSantis running at the same time? What does a race like that look like?
4: Well, of course, that would be a primary type race, uh, and it's it's a tough one to tell because Trump has this, he's become ingrained in a way, um, uh, and with respect to is he going to run or not, if all this pussyfooting keeps going and nothing is actually done in a court of law against him, I think it's very likely he is going to try and run again. Um, if, if he is, if he's been indicted or something like that, I think the the question, I don't think he would in that kind of an instance, but you go into this business and, and I, I worry about this, the, the attitude about, about Trump, that, uh, the comments on, that I see on social media really point up to the fact this country is massively divided.
0: Yeah, hugely
4: getting defend Southern heritage ads on my Facebook.
0: Oh my God.
4: Absolutely shocking to me. And there are a number of different organizations that are out there paying to have their ads on Facebook, but it's shocking to me that 150 years later, we are still reliving the civil war and talking about those wonderful heroes who lost their lives for the Southern cause. Oh,
0: you know, Trump, this, this apropos of, of nothing really. I, I, uh, I just wrote my uh, my eighth book, and I sent it to my publisher. It's it's a guide to Washington D.C.'s historic cemeteries, and there's a cemetery in uh, in Northeast Washington that has uh, the only the only man, the only Confederate officer executed for crimes against humanity committed during the Civil War. And so I I wrote a little you know a little mini biography on him for the book. And I uh, tracked down his grave. He was hard to find. And I, I went to take a picture of it. And not only did it have a little mini Confederate flag stuck in the ground, but that was new, like just, you know, from days earlier, it also had a bronze commemorative marker um, for his service in the Confederacy. And then somebody had placed um, a, a pennant that said, hero. And this guy was the commandant of the largest prison camp. It was Andersonville Prison in Georgia, where he killed people just for sport. And he's seen in 2022 as a as a hero of uh, the Confederacy. I just don't get it.
4: One of the ads that I saw, the, the, the photograph was of a cemetery with all of the graves with little Confederate flags. Oh, man. And uh, there was some, I, I can't remember what the lead-in was, uh, and also there are some ads that are talking about these Confederate monuments that are being
0: taken down. Yeah.
4: So my, my comment on this Confederate flag uh, cemetery is, gee, I'm wondering where all the Germans are.
0: Yeah, seriously.
4: With their, with their Nazi flags. That's right. Plugged into the cemeteries.
0: Yeah, they learned their lesson. Okay. Brian Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Brian is a California-based attorney and a former radio talk show host. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take another break and come right back. Stay tuned.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And we are checking in again on how Puerto Rico is doing following uh, being raped by Hurricane Fiona and also asking, you know... Uh, Why is it that these disasters seem to have such serious and lasting effects, especially when you consider that Puerto Rico is a territory of the wealthiest country in the world? Uh, Is this inevitable or is this the result of uh, colonial policies? Is this the result of of debt traps set for Puerto Rico? Uh, Why do these disasters seem to be so disastrous? Joining us for this conversation is Adriana Garriga-Lopez. She's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Kalamazoo College in Michigan, and she's Associate Faculty of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Adriana, thanks for joining us again.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: So rain continues to fall in Puerto Rico. It is not predicted to stop until after tomorrow. Two people, as far as I know, have died in Puerto Rico as a result of this storm. Another has died in the Dominican Republic. Eighty percent of Puerto Rico is still without power. Uh, The rain has created flooding and mudslides. And I wonder if you can stop by just sort of updating us on on conditions on the island, uh, as far as we know.
5: Sure thing. Well, thank you for having me. And I have to clarify that I'm now Associate Professor of Anthropology at Florida Atlantic University. I started a new job here. Oh, cool. Just to be accurate. (laughs) Great. Um, So conditions in Puerto Rico have been really hard over the last few days. Um, The newspapers in Puerto Rico reported four people had died as a result of the storm. And, of course, we know there was one person who died on the island of Guadalupe. Uh, which was hit before Puerto Rico as well. And we hear that there's at least one person dead in the Dominican Republic. And uh, in Puerto Rico, we've seen unprecedented amounts of rain uh, in the southwestern corner of the of the largest island. We hear there's been about 30 inches of rain deposited by this storm, which is just a, a, an unprecedented amount of rain. Um, and uh, there have been numerous mudslides, uh, landslides, and... Almost every river has uh, overflowed, um, and we just see flooding everywhere in urban areas as well. And this is a a, a, a disaster almost on the scale of Hurricane Maria, uh, which was exactly five years ago today. Uh, So it is terrible to be, um, you know, going through this again five years later.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think the the consensus seems to be that, you know, Puerto Rico hasn't fully recovered from the impact of Hurricane Maria. And so I want to ask, you know, right now, uh, the the AccuWeather estimate of the economic impact on the island from this hurricane was going to be about 10 billion dollars. Uh, President Joe Biden has already declared a state of emergency, but he spoke with the governor of Puerto Rico last night and said he would substantially increase support. Uh, but, you know, I wonder if the conversation we should be having is whether we are striking the right balance between prevention and reaction when it comes to these storms, right? If if, if Puerto Rico, after five years, hasn't been uh, fully recovered from Hurricane Maria, you know, uh, that doesn't seem to be inevitable when you are a territory right. associated with the wealthiest country in the world. So what what is happening?
5: Yeah, Puerto Rico has definitely not recovered from the impact of Hurricane Maria. Uh, and precisely because Puerto Rico is a territory, an unincorporated territory of the United States, it does not have uh, full democracy or full political representation. Uh, that is why we are seeing... Such terrible results uh, as of um, as a consequence of these storms, uh, there were there were very few preparations put in place. The governor of Puerto Rico said that Puerto Rico was prepared, but everyone knows this is not true. Uh, the electrical system has been in crisis ever since Hurricane Maria, yeah, uh, and even more so after it was privatized uh, and is now being run. Distribution is now being run by a U.S. company that is not familiar uh, with the Puerto Rican system and the way that the Puerto Rican employees who they displaced were. Uh, We know that there's been huge amounts of corruption. Even some female officials have been indicted and jailed as a result of the corruption that happened with the funds that were delivered. Um, And, of course, the majority of the funds that were promised by the U.S. federal government actually never made it to Puerto Rico. Um, So we see as a result of that that Many of the schools that used to be um, used as, as hurricane shelters in the past were not available for um, use or they were completely unprepared, meaning that they didn't have generators um, and they were not uh, furnished in order to accommodate the large amounts of people that needed sheltering. Uh, we see that uh, the, the, electric, the electrical system collapsed island-wide. And, of course, along with that often goes the water system because many people rely on electrical pumps to pump water Uh, up to their homes. And so we have, again, the majority of the island without electricity, without water, uh, many roads impassable, and there are very few signs of uh, an active recovery, except for um, the people of Puerto Rico who are, once again, the ones that are in the forefront of the effort to recover and to help each other, um, including rescues that occurred during the storm. Uh, In many cases where neighbors who were rescuing other people uh, in their neighborhoods. And so what we see right here is the result, the confluence of, you know, corruption, uh, climate change, and the, the unwillingness of the political system to take seriously the needs of the people in Puerto Rico uh, because they see Puerto Rico as a tax haven and as an opportunity to, um, to get even richer, right, uh, by people who have moved to Puerto Rico under um, tax evasion laws that permit them to live there half the year. And not pay any taxes on their capital gains, and at the same time displacing the population of Puerto Rico. And these, of course, have become the people who making who are now making the biggest donations to the politicians, especially and including the governor of Puerto Rico and his cronies in the in the PNP party. So this is this is a, a you know a sad repetition of affairs. But in a, with regards to the impact of the storm, but it's actually worse because the the social structure. Even weaker than it was in twenty seventeen
1: when Maria hit, yeah, was there was there any kind of exodus after after Maria? um or is this just sort of a continuation of trends that existed before Hurricane Maria? You mentioned, you know, Puerto Rico being used as a tax haven. and then, of course, the the wealthy and powerful people who uh, have enough money to be motivated to not pay taxes on it, uh, getting being um, over overrepresented politically.
5: Yes, there was a huge exodus of people after Hurricane Maria, one of the largest we've ever seen. Uh, Over 300,000 people left left Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Some of those people returned once conditions stabilized, but many did not. Uh, We've seen the the diaspora grow, the Hurricane Maria diaspora grow uh, in the United States. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think what we have to look at also is the effect of of the gentrification processes that are being led by... Uh, Those investors that are coming to Puerto Rico to buy up the properties that were, um, uh, you know, whose value had depreciated greatly after Hurricane Maria uh, and are basically uh, pushing people out of uh, working class neighborhoods or, you know, middle class neighborhoods and and buying up real estate to turn them into Airbnb properties or to turn them into resort properties or to turn them into, you know, work work, uh, collectives or whatever they call them. Um, you know, and, and that has had the effect of populational displacement in Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, a Bad, Bunny just re- <laughs> Bad Bunny just released a, um, the day before the stern released a, a video that was a video to one of his songs. But after the video, there was a long reported uh, report of about 20 minutes documentary by a local independent uh, journalist, Bianca Graulao, that details these processes. Uh, and and takes a hard look at what that has really meant for the people of Puerto Rico, but also all the ways in which people have continued to resist. And I think, you know, it's worth looking at. Even if you don't like Bad Bunny, I (laughs) encourage people to, like, you know, skip the song video if you don't want to watch it, but then watch the documentary that follows immediately thereafter. And
1: can I sort of um, uh, conclude a little bit that, you know, what happens as a result of these processes is that you have Puerto Ricans who have been displaced by uh, gentrification that is driven in part by uh, U.S. federal tax regulations. Living in housing that is, you know, less less sturdy, less adequate than the housing they had before that they can no longer uh, afford, and then also, you know, you have a lot of the more uh, robust infrastructure owned by people who don't have any particular commitment to Puerto Rico, who can leave ahead of storms like this, and who can always sort of, you know, in in a worst case scenario, write off a property as a loss and collect insurance rather than, you know, uh, be committed to the rebuilding process. Is that sort of a reasonable sort of summary of some of these processes?
5: People did leave, for example, before Fiona hit the the island. Uh, They have no real investment in the community in Puerto Rico. They do not contribute substantially. And I think one of the things that we have to be really um, careful and watching watching out for is that part of this Act 22 law required these um, people... To create NGOs, to create community based organizations to, you know, quote unquote, give back to the community. And so what we're now going to see is a lot of these new, com- these new, co- the so called community based organizations that actually have no connection to the community become conduits for the millions and millions of dollars of federal funds that are going to come in uh, as disaster aid. And we're going to see, uh, I, I hope not, but I think unfortunately, likely. We're going to see a repetition of what happened after Maria, which is, you know, a bunch of people just looking to get rich and creating these false, uh, these false organizations that actually will not channel the funds to where but the they are very much needed. And the suffering of the, of the people of Puerto Rico today, what we're seeing, the amount of destruction that we're seeing today, is a direct result of the lack of consistent attention to the needs of the reconstructing people's homes environments, communities, businesses. that We've had five years. There's been five years during which that work should have been done. But until the day that Fiona hit Puerto Rico, there were still people living with blue tarps as roofs since 2017. Man,
1: I did not know that that was part of that Act 22 law. And it is, I mean, there are, of course, there are a lot of good uh, good non-governmental organizations, grassroots organizations doing good work. But there are also so many of them that are just basically skimming off the top, right? Skimming off the top of funding that is supposed to go to the people of some country or another, or some territory, or another, in this case, sort of giving, you know, cr- creating a new sort of uh, professional ecosystem that allows non-Puerto Ricans to, uh, you know, live off of funding that is supposed to go to Puerto Ricans. It is wild how this sort of Good idea has proliferated and just become a kind of way for basically wealthy Western elites to continue to live um, high on the hog. It's uh, it's wild the way this has progressed. Let me ask you. I want to ask about uh, political implications in Puerto Rico, and I want to ask about this. The BBC in 2017 published a comparison between the responses of Cuba and the responses of Puerto Rico to Hurricane Maria, and the the reporter that went to Cuba had some criticisms, but mostly praise for Cuba's response, and was pretty appalled by what he witnessed in Puerto Rico. And the biz- biggest criticism was uh, a lack of government leadership and a lack of um, personnel. And I wanted to ask, you know, we have talked about so the the consequences of, of displacement and of, um, you know, a lack of investment in infrastructure. What does this what what does Puerto Rico's position as a territory and what do these influences um do to politics there, right? Do you think they contribute to well one, do you think this report is is fair, that this is a fair comparison? And then do you do you think that some of the forces that we've been talking about, you know, contribute to a lack of political leadership? Uh oh, we might oh, have lost Adriana lost or she's muted. I'll give her one sec to see if she's muted. Oh, we've we lost, lost her. her. Uh, let's see if we can get her back because we still have some time left in the program. And I had another um, question that I wanted to ask. So, if you can bring her back, um, let's go for it. But I think it is really important to understand that, like, it, it, there are a lot of factors that have gone into leaving Puerto Rico really vulnerable to these disasters, and the United States government plays a very big role in, in creating yes. that scenario. And it didn't
0: happen overnight. No, this is this is decades of neglect of the of the island.
1: Yeah. Decades, exactly, and it's also you know, you know these hurricanes do happen, but I do. It was it was very um, stark the comparison the BBC drew between the response by Cuba, which of course is a very small, very poor deliberately poor yep. island yep. uh that is you know Puerto Rico's neighbor who is blockaded by the United States does not have access to great resources and yet it you know in in the words of this reporter uh was able to respond a, a lot better uh Adriana I'm not sure how much of that question you heard do you want me to repeat this I was asking about the comparison between Cuba and Puerto Rico, in terms of their response to Hurricane Maria, whether you think that comparison is adequate or you know fair, right, useful, and the political consequences of some of the economic trends we've been talking about.
6: Yeah, well, it's a difficult comparison to make because the socio-political situation is quite different. Mm -hmm. But I think the 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 way in which it is significant uh, and important to look at the case of Cuba is in the the way that public priorities are established and the way that resources are uh, apportioned. And when you look at the system in Puerto Rico and what has happened under the auspices of the Fiscal Control Board over the last five years, uh, which has dovetailed with the crisis um, spurned by Maria, is that the Fiscal Control Board has slashed education and health funding in Puerto Rico, leading to a major crisis in education and an enormous crisis in the health uh, and public health system in Puerto Rico. And in the Cuban case, it is the opposite. The Cubans have dedicated a uh, majority of their resources to public fu- public health and education. And so that, I think, it goes a long way to explaining the differences in terms of these outcomes. But I think the important thing to focus on in the case of Puerto Rico is that these are the direct consequences of U.S. colonialism. These are the direct—these the people who are suffering the, the who are— um, uh, just out of surgery in hospitals that have no electricity, the children that are in uh, in ICU units that have uh, no access to um, regular care, uh, the the all those situations that the children have not been able to go to school on a regular basis, the people who didn't have shelters to attend to go before the storm, which are usually schools, all of those situations can be traced back to the impact of the austerity policies put in place by the Fiscal Control Board since 2015, which uh, 2016, which, by the way, happened under the Obama administration. And so it's really not a situation in which we can say, oh, this is what the Republicans do, this is what the Democrats do. This is the result of 124 years of U.S. colonialism. The United States owes Puerto Rico reparations for colonialism, which is a crime, under the uh, international legal system. And that is what the main issue here is. There is an issue of corruption, absolutely. There there are many uh, important issues that have to be attended to, but underneath all of those underlying each and every one of those situations is a fundamental lack of democratic and, and full representation from the people of Puerto Rico. And until that changes, there will not be a different result. It doesn't matter how much federal funding you send. If in the end it just goes into the pockets of the billionaires who are already in Puerto Rico eh, 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 buying up property and displacing people and p- killing communities, that is not a recovery. That is not a true recovery. That's just a feedback loop for the millionaires and the billionaires who are already represented, overrepresented, as you said, in D.C. and uh, in the in the legal system and in the political system in the United States. You what know- we need is true people's recovery.
1: You know, it's interesting because, of course, I I wanted to, you know, reflect on the unique, the the way that this uh, catastrophe that we are seeing right now, the preventable aspects of this catastrophe can be traced to Puerto Rico's status as a territory and to, again, that more than a century of uh, colonization. But when I was thinking about, you know, is there a difference in the way natural disasters like hurricanes are Prepared for and handled in, say, you know, Florida and Texas and Louisiana, in places in the U.S. mainland. Uh, I started thinking about what, what just happened in Kentucky, the flooding in Kentucky earlier this summer that was so catastrophic that destroyed the the homes and livelihoods of of so many poor people who we really don't hear very much about almost ever, right? A- Appalachia, and so I started to wonder. You know, Puerto Rico has a unique history. As a territory and certainly um, formally lacks uh, full representation in in the U.S. government and uh, Puerto Ricans lack the full rights of other U.S. citizens. But in the sort of informal way that money erodes. the franchise, right, for poor people, and that money uh, uh, manipulates our our politics. It, it seems like it is possible that some of this flooding in Kentucky isn't such a you know isn't such a, uh, a a distant thing, right? And maybe this is a good comparison of like this is just sort of what this system will get away with vis-a-vis poor people, whether they are poor uh, as a result of. Uh, colonialism or whether they are poor as a result of uh, just sort of being casually disenfranchised members of the, uh, you know, the 50 states. I I wonder what you think of this comparison.
6: There is no doubt that poor people around the world are suffering the consequences of uh, uh, the increased, you know, the the increased wealth inequality that we have seen in the last uh, couple of years throughout the pandemic. We've seen a massive polarization of wealth and, and at the same time, an increase in the intense and extreme effects of climate disruption. And there is no doubt that poor people in the United States, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in Puerto Rico, and all over the world are suffering—in the Alaska—are suffering the direct consequences of that lack of investment in uh, in human health and, and human communities, uh, vis-a-vis the the investment in padding the pockets of the uh, of the extremely wealthy, uh, so I agree with your comparison in that regard. I think that, with, however, the effects uh, of um, that of that wealth inequality and of capitalism are also distinct in different places, and they manifest through different mechanisms. Uh, and so it is, it is, in fact, the case that Puerto Ricans do not have representation, do not have voting representation in, uh, in Congress or in any other uh, parliamentary body um, in the United States or outside of the United States. And Puerto Rico cannot receive aid from any other country but the United States because of its position as a U.S. territory. And so there are particularities that have to do with Puerto Rico's colonial context that are very different. From those uh, that you would see in a in a one of the 50 states of the United States. Uh, however, I agree fundamentally. The issue here is the, 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 the greediness and the uh, fundamental unfairness of the economic and political system that we all live under. I agree that has to be transformed. Uh, and, but until we are, are, are allowing people to make determinations based on their own, uh, you know, on their own communities' needs. Uh, we are not going to see a, a, a transformation in the way that people are able to respond to these di- to these disasters. So we have to be able to maintain, uh, you know, international solidarity, working class solidarity across these different contexts. I think that is absolutely fundamental. And at the same time, we have to also be able to recognize that uh, not all poverty is the same, and not all poverty has the same exact causes. Uh, and the, the situation in Puerto Rico. Um, it is created by the fundamental political, uh, po- po- the situation of political subjugation. And so, you know, they, they, they're, they're intimately connected.
1: Adriana Garriga-Lopez, always a pleasure to talk to you. Is there anywhere you want to tell our listeners to go to look for more of your work?
6: Absolutely. You can visit my website, which is adrianagarrigalopez.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at AnthroRican. Thank you so
1: much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
6: All right. Thank you for having me. And uh, my thoughts go out to all the people in Puerto Rico who are rebuilding their communities today.
1: Yes, ours as well. All right, John, got a couple last headlines. Yeah, There are a few to choose from. I'll let you. Do you have anything that well, you need to get into in the last I, five minutes?
0: I just wanted to say real quickly that uh, I think this decision by a court in Baltimore to vacate the sentence of Adnan Syed, who was featured in uh, in the podcast podcast, uh, what was the podcast uh, um serial serial thank mm-hmm. you uh I this is a very big deal he's been in prison for 23 20 years years yeah yeah three years and um yeah he's lost of more than 50 percent of his life uh he um it's unclear whether or not the the district attorney will file new charges uh, the re- the reporting says likely not uh, I think he's pretty likely innocent. And uh, yeah, glad to but see. But
1: when they you. vacate the conviction, what is that? So yeah, prosecutors can decide if they want to retry this or not. It's not the same as deciding he's innocent. They're, they've Correct. decided that his his trial was, was inadequate. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean for him legally? So he he's he's not he's neither innocent nor guilty. Correct. He's just right back to square one.
0: So he has Except, to wait for the prosecution to make a decision, and then they'll if they decide not to prosecute, they'll send a declination letter. If that happens, I hope he has a really great uh, civil attorney to file a suit against the city and the state. Uh, 23 years of your life for nothing. Yes. Uh, deserves some recompense.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's also more chess drama. Oh, no. Did you Are you, see you kidding? this? Yes. I'm not going to say anything about sex toys. Uh, but uh, Magnus Carlsen, who is the grandmaster, the, the world champion, the chess world champion. Yeah. Um, who... Uh, this is the cheater.
0: No, okay, the other guy was the guy. cheater. Okay,
1: but um, he was uh, in a rematch with the cheater. He walked off after uh, uh, one move. What? So they were supposed. They met again. Um, the uh, the guy who is accused, who, who has cheating rumors swirling around him, Hans Moki Nyman. Uh, began with two conventional moves against world champion Magnus Carlsen in an online event on Monday, and Carlsen, uh, he simply resigned the game. What? And so he's the one who tweeted the the, um, uh, video of a football coach saying, if I say anything, I'm going to be in trouble. He seems to be clearly indicating that he doesn't want to play this guy, and he thinks this guy is cheating. But I don't know that there is anything, you know, sort of formal that's come out about this. Uh, and Nyman continues to deny cheating against him or cheating at all in any context. Um, although he has said he sought illegal assistance in online games twice before uh, as youthful mistakes. So, okay. So it still is just sort of a matter of rumor and of Carlson continuing to, I guess, not come out and publicly accuse him of cheating, Yeah, but do everything. But, and for some reason now we're all drawn into the world of chess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, also, did you see the Beyond Meat COO was arrested for biting a man's nose? No. Near a stadium? No, that's He seems dangerous. to have maybe, like, had some kind of uh, mental crisis. Uh, he he it was at a parking garage, I think. Um, he was arrested for a terroristic threatening and third-degree battery. Uh He, wow. I guess, like, blocked somebody in punched through the back windshield of the this Subaru that he blocked in the owner got out and said he ran this guy Ramsey pulled him in close and started punching him and then bit his nose uh my god you can bite somebody's nose off yeah he seems like he bit off a little bit of the tip what or like caused some damage to the flesh there not to get too gross yeah, uh, don't know what's going on there. doesn't sound like the actions of a, a well person. No. So, um no. We'll see. We'll see what continues to, to No, unfold. that's not
0: good at all. That's um, not good at all.
1: No. Also, we got Elton John playing at the White House on Friday, apparently.
0: Yeah, this is his final, his farewell tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's getting... Just great coverage all across the country. He was in Pittsburgh a couple of nights ago. I saw in the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. I
1: mean, cool. I don't know why Biden Biden likes to use this line from a Seamus Heaney translation of a Greek uh, poem, uh, talking about times when hope and history rhyme. It's like if you're going to rip off, you know, if you're going to keep invoking this Irish poet, maybe like have an Irish guy come.
0: Right. Right. Get the Pogues instead of Elton Get John.
1: The Pogues to come play on the, the White Pogues House lawn. would be awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I was just listening to the Pogues yesterday.
1: Yes, uh, I was gonna. I can't pick my favorite Pogues song, so I won't list them all. We're gonna go. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. Uh, thanks to our producers and engineers, and on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Whitty, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.